0: The Sleepy Bookshelf should have something for everyone. If we are missing your favorite story, you can vote for future books on our website, sleepybookshelf.com. Good evening, and welcome to The Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host. I'm so glad to have you here with me. Tonight we're continuing with Little Women, but before that, I'll give you some time to settle down for the night. Give yourself a nice, big stretch where you are, allowing all the tension to release from your muscles. You have nothing left to do today but get a good night's sleep. Isn't that a nice feeling? Now, let's take some deep breaths to calm our minds. Inhale deeply and mentally collect all the thoughts still occupying your concentration. And exhale, letting them all go. Once more now, inhale and exhale. Keep breathing steadily as we recap on our last episode. Previously we found Jo in the parlour, pondering on her loneliness and a potential life as a spinster, when she was awoken from a partial slumber by Laurie, returned from Europe. He broke the news that he and Amy had got married while they had been abroad. The Carols were extending their trip and didn't think it proper to let Amy go home alone with Mr. Lawrence and Laurie, so they married in a simple ceremony to make it official. Joe was surprised, but ultimately happy for the two, as Laurie seemed completely smitten and he promised to love Joe always as a sister. Amy then appeared with the rest of the family who had been waylaid at Meg's and they all settled into a frenzied catch-up and with happiness all around. After dinner, Joe was alone in the passageway once again, feeling despondent, when a knock at the door came. She opened it to find her dear friend, Mr. Beer. He had come, just as he had promised. She did not hide her joy and welcomed him in to join the jolly gathering. They had a wonderful evening and Joe could feel something special about Mr. Beer's presence. When everyone departed, he asked if he may visit again soon, as he had business in town, to which the Marches heartily agreed. And that's where we pick back up tonight, with the March family together again, and the newlyweds adjusting to being home. So just try to relax and continue to breathe deeply as I turn to the next pages of Little Women. Chapter 44, My Lord and Lady. Please, Madame Mother, could you lend me my wife for half an hour? The luggage has come and I've been making hay of Amy's Paris finery, trying to find some things I want, said Laurie, coming in the next day to find Mrs. Lawrence sitting in her mother's lap, as if being made the baby again. Certainly, go dear, I forgot you have any home but this, and Mrs. March pressed the white hand that wore the wedding ring, as if asking pardon for her maternal covetousness. I shouldn't have come over if I could have helped it, but I can't get on without my little woman any more than a weathercock can without the wind, suggested Joe as he paused for a simile joe had grown quite her own saucy self again since teddy came home exactly for amy keeps me pointing due west most of the time with only an occasional whiffle round to the south and i haven't had an easterly spell since i was married don't know anything about the north but i'm altogether salubrious and balmy hey my lady lovely weather so far I don't know how long it will last, but I'm not afraid of storms, for I'm learning how to sail my ship. Come home, dear, and I'll find your bootjack. I suppose that's what you're rummaging after among my things. Men are so helpless, Mother, said Amy, with a matronly air which delighted her husband. What are you going to do with yourselves after you get settled? asked Joe buttoning Amy's cloak as she used to button her pinafores. We have our plans. We don't mean to say much about them yet, because we are such very new brooms, but we don't intend to be idle. I'm going into business with a devotion that shall delight Grandfather, and prove to him that I'm not spoiled. I need something of the sort to keep me steady. I'm tired of dawdling, and mean to work like a man. And Amy... What is she going to do? asked Mrs. March, well pleased at Laurie's decision and the energy with which he spoke. After doing the civil all-round and airing our best bonnet, we shall astonish you by the elegant hospitalities of our mansion, and the brilliant society we shall draw about us, and the beneficial influence we shall exert over the world at large, That's about it, isn't it, Madame Recamier? asked Laurie, with a quizzical look at Amy. Time will show. Come away, impertinence, and don't shock my family by calling me names before their faces, answered Amy, resolving that there should be a home with a good wife in it before she set up a salon as a queen of society." "'How happy those children seem together,' observed Mr. March, finding it difficult to become absorbed in his Aristotle after the young couple had gone. "'Yes, and I think it will last. "'Now, Laurie, don't be too fastidious and worldly-minded. "'If they love one another, it doesn't matter a particle how old they are, nor how poor.' women never should marry for money. Amy caught herself up short as the words escaped her and looked at her husband, who replied with malicious gravity. Certainly not, though you do hear charming girls say that they intend to do sometimes. If my memory serves me, you once thought it your duty to make a rich match." That accounts, perhaps, for your marrying for a good-for-nothing like me. Oh, my dearest boy, don't, don't say that. I forgot you were rich when I said yes. I'd have married you if you hadn't a penny, and I sometimes wish you were poor, that I might show how much I love you. And Amy, who was very dignified in public and very fond in private— gave convincing proofs of the truth of her words. You don't really think I'm such a mercenary creature as I tried to be once, do you? It would break my heart if you didn't believe that I'd gladly pull in the same boat with you, even if you had to get your living by rowing on the lake. Am I an idiot and a brute? How could I think so when you refused a richer man for me, and won't let me give you half I want to now, when I have the right. Girls do it every day, poor things, and are taught to think it's their only salvation. But you had better lessons, and though I trembled for you at one time, I was not disappointed, for the daughter was true to the mother's teaching. I told mamma so yesterday. She looked as glad and grateful as if I'd given her a cheque for a million to be spent in charity. You're not listening to my moral remarks, Mrs. Lawrence. And Laurie paused, for Amy's eyes had an absent look, though fixed upon his face. Yes, I am, and admiring the mole in your chin at the same time. I don't wish to make you vain but I must confess that I'm prouder of my handsome husband than all of his money. Don't laugh, but your nose is such a comfort to me. And Amy softly caressed the well-cut feature with artistic satisfaction. Laurie had received many compliments in his life, but never one that suited him better as he plainly showed, though he did laugh at his wife's peculiar tastes, while she said slowly, May I ask you a question, dear? Of course you may. Shall you care if Joe does marry Mr. Beer? Oh, that's the trouble, is it? I thought that there was something in the dimple that didn't quite suit you. Not being a dog in the manger the happiest fellow alive, I can assure you I can dance at Joe's wedding with a heart as light as my heels. Do you doubt it, my darling? Amy looked up at him and was satisfied. Her little jealous fear vanished forever, and she thanked him with a face full of love and confidence. I wish we could do something for that capital, old professor. Couldn't we invent a rich relation who shall obligingly die out there in Germany and leave him a tidy little fortune? Said Laurie, when they began to pace up and down the long drawing room, arm in arm, as they were fond of doing, in memory of the Chateau Garden. Joe would find us out and spoil it all, She's very proud of him, just as he is, and said yesterday that she thought poverty was a beautiful thing. Bless her dear heart. She won't think so when she has a literary husband and a dozen little professors and professorins to support. We won't interfere now, but watch our chance and do them a good turn in spite of themselves. I owe Joe for part of my education she believes in people paying their honest debts, so I'll get round her in that way. How delightful it is to be able to help others, isn't it? That was always one of my dreams, to have the power of giving freely, and thanks to you, the dream has come true. Ah, we'll do quantities of good, won't we? There's one sort of poverty that I particularly like to help, out-and-out out beggars get taken care of, but gentle folks fare badly because they won't ask, and people don't dare to offer charity. Yet there are thousands of ways of helping them, for one only knows how to do it so delicately that it does not offend. Because it takes a gentleman to do it, added the other member of the Domestic Admiration Society. Thank you. I'm afraid I don't deserve that pretty compliment. But I was going to say that while I was dawdling about abroad, I saw a good many talented young fellows making all sorts of sacrifices and enduring real hardships that they might realise their dreams. Splendid fellows, some of them, working like heroes, poor and friendless, but so full of courage patience and ambition that I was ashamed of myself and longed to give them a right good lift. Those are people whom it's a satisfaction to help, for if they've got genius, it's an honour to be allowed to serve them, not let it be lost or delayed for want of fuel to keep the pot boiling. If they haven't, it's a pleasure to comfort the poor souls and keep them from despair when they at last find it out. Yes, indeed. And there's another class who can't ask and who suffer in silence. I know something of it, for I belonged to it before you made a princess of me, as the king does the beggar maid in the old story. Ambitious girls have a hard time, Laurie, and often have to see youth, health, and precious opportunities go by just for want of a little help at the right minute. People have been very kind to me, and whenever I see girls struggling along, as we used to do, I want to put out my hand and help them, as I was helped. And so you shall, like an angel as you are," said Laurie, resolving with a glow of philanthropic zeal to found and endow an institution for the express benefit of young women With artistic tendencies. Rich people have no right to sit down and enjoy themselves, or let their money accumulate for others to waste. It's not half so sensible to have legacies when one dies as it is to use the money wisely while alive and enjoy making one's fellow creatures happy with it. We'll have a good time ourselves and add in extra relish to our own pleasure by giving other people a generous taste. Will you be a little Dorcas, going about emptying a big basket of comforts and filling it up with good deeds? With all my heart, if you will be a brave St. Martin, stopping as you ride gallantly through the world to share your cloak with the beggar. It's a bargain, and we shall get the best of it. So, the young pair shook hands upon it and then paced happily on again, feeling that their pleasant home was more home-like because they had hoped to brighten other homes, believing that their own feet would walk more uprightly along the flowery path before them if they smoothed rough ways for other feet and feeling that their hearts were more closely knit together by a love which could tenderly remember those less blessed than they. Chapter 45 Daisy and Demi I cannot feel that I have done my duty as a humble historian of the March family without devoting at least one chapter to the two most precious and important members of it. Daisy and Demi had now arrived at years of discretion, for in this far stage, babies of three or four assert their rights and get them too, which is more than many of their elders do. If there ever were a pair of twins in danger of being utterly spoilt by adoration, it was these prattling brooks. Of course, they were the most remarkable children ever born, as will be shown when I mention that they walked at 8 months, talked fluently at 12 months, and at 2 years, They took their places at table and behaved with a propriety which charmed all beholders. At three, Daisy demanded a needle and actually made a bag with four stitches in it. She likewise set up housekeeping in the sideboard and managed a microscopic cooking stove with a skill brought tears of pride to Hannah's eyes, while Demi learned his letters with his grandfather, who invented a new mode of teaching the alphabet by forming letters with his arms and legs, thus uniting gymnastics for head and heels. The boy early developed a mechanical genius which delighted his father and distracted his mother, for he tried to imitate every machine he saw and kept the nursery in a chaotic condition with his sewing machine, a mysterious structure of string, chairs, clothespins, and spools for wheels to go wound and wound. Also, a basket hung over the back of a chair, in which he vainly tried to hoist his too-confiding sister, who, with feminine devotion, allowed her little head to be bumped till rescued, when the young inventor indignantly remarked, Why, Mama, that's my elevator, and I'm trying to pull her up. Though utterly unlike in character, the twins got on remarkably well together, and seldom quarreled more than thrice a day. Of course, Demi tyrannized over Daisy and gallantly defended her from every other aggressor, while Daisy made a galley slave of herself and adored her brother as the one perfect being in the world. A rosy, chubby, sunshiny little soul was Daisy, who found her way to everybody's heart and nestled there. One of the captivating children, who seemed to be made to kiss and cuddle, adorned and adored like a little goddess and produced for general approval on all festive occasions. Her small virtues were so sweet that she would have been quite angelic if a few small naughtinesses had not kept her delightfully human. It was all fair weather in her world, and every morning she scrambled up to the window in her little nightgown to look out and say, no matter whether it rained or shone, Oh, pretty day." Oh, pretty day. Everyone was a friend, and she offered kisses to a stranger so confidingly that the most inveterate bachelor relented, and baby lovers became faithful worshippers. I love everybody, she once said, opening her arms with her spoon in one hand and her mug in the other as if eager to embrace and nourish the whole world. As she grew, her mother began to feel that the dovecote would be blessed by the presence of an inmate as serene and loving as that which had helped to make the old house home, and to pray that she might be spared a loss like that which had lately taught them how long they had entertained an angel unawares. Her grandfather often called her Beth, and her grandmother watched over her with untiring devotion, as if trying to atone for some past mistake which no eye but her own could see. Demi like a true Yankee, was of an inquiring turn, wanting to know everything, and often getting much disturbed because he could not get satisfactory answers to his perpetual what-for. He also possessed a philosophic bent to the great delight of his grandfather, who used to hold Socratic conversations with him, in which the precocious pupil occasionally posed his teacher, to the undisguised satisfaction of the woman folk. What makes my legs go, Drampa? asked the young philosopher, surveying those active portions of his frame with a meditative air, while resting after a go-to-bed frolic one night. "'It's your little mind, Demi,' replied the sage, stroking the yellow-haired respectfully. "'What is a little mind?' "'It's something which makes your body move, as the spring made the wheels go in my watch when I showed it to you. Open me. I want to see it go round.' "'I can't do that any more than you could open the watch.' God winds you up and you'll go till he stops you. Do I? And Demi's brown eyes grew big and bright as he took in the new thought. Am I wound up like the watch? Yes, but I can't show you how, for it's done when we don't see. Demi felt his back, as if expecting to find it like that of the watch, and then gravely remarked, "'I guess God does it while I'm asleep.' A careful explanation followed, to which he listened so attentively that his anxious grandmother said, "'My dear, do you think it wise to talk about such things to that baby?' He's getting great bumps over his eyes and learning to ask the most unanswerable questions. If he is old enough to ask the questions, he is old enough to receive true answers. I'm not putting the thoughts into his head, but helping him unfold those already there. These children are wiser than we are and I have no doubt the boy understands every word I have said to him. Now, Demi, tell me where you keep your mind. If the boy had replied like Alcibades, by the god Socrates I cannot tell, his grandfather would not have been surprised. But when, after standing a moment on one leg, like a meditative young stork, He answered in a tone of calm conviction. In my little belly. The old gentleman could only join in Grandma's laugh and dismiss the class in metaphysics. There might have been cause for maternal anxiety if Demi had not given convincing proofs that he was a true boy as well as a budding philosopher. For often, after a discussion which caused Hannah to prophecy with ominous nods, that child isn't long for this world, he would turn about and set her fears at rest by some of the pranks with which dear, dirty, naughty little rascals distract and delight their parents' souls. Mag made many moral rules and tried to keep them, but what mother was ever proof against the winning wiles, the ingenious evasions, or the tranquil audacity of the miniature men and women who so early show themselves accomplished artful dodgers? No more raisins, Demi. They'll make you sick says Mama to the young person who offers his services in the kitchen with unfailing regularity on plum pudding day. I like to be sick. I don't want to have you, so run away and help Daisy make patty cakes. He reluctantly departs, but his wrongs weigh upon his spirit, and by and by, when an opportunity comes to redress them, he outwits Mama by a shrewd bargain. Now you have been good children, and I'll play anything you like, says Meg as she leads her assistant cooks upstairs when the pudding is safely bouncing in the pot. Truly, Mama, asks Demi, with a brilliant idea in his well-powdered head. "'Yes, truly, anything you say,' replies the short-sighted parent, preparing herself to sing The Three Little Kittens half a dozen times over, or to take her family to buy a penny bun, regardless of wind or limb. But Demi corners her by the cool reply. Then we'll go and eat up all the raisins." Aunt Dodo was a chief playmate and confidant of both children, and the trio turned the little house topsy-turvy. Aunt Amy was as yet only a name to them. Aunt Beth soon faded into a pleasantly vague memory. But Aunt Dodo was a living reality, and they made the most of her, for which compliment she was deeply grateful. But when Mr. Beer came, Joe neglected her playfellows, and dismay and desolation fell upon their little souls. Daisy, who was fond of going about peddling kisses lost her best customer and became bankrupt. Demi, with infantile penetration, soon discovered that Dodo liked to play with the bear man better than she did him. But though hurt, he concealed his anguish, for he hadn't the heart to insult a rival who kept a mine of chocolate drops in his waistcoat pocket and a watch that could be taken out of its case and freely shaken by ardent admirers. Some persons might have considered these pleasing liberties as bribes, but Demi didn't see them in that light and continued to patronize the bare man with pensive affability while Daisy bestowed her small affections upon him at the third call, and considered his shoulder her throne, his arm her refuge, his gifts treasures surpassing worth. Gentlemen are sometimes seized with sudden fits of admiration for the young relatives of ladies whom they honour with their regard, but this counterfeit philoprogenitiveness sits uneasily upon them and does not deceive anybody a particle. Mr. Beer's devotion was sincere, however, likewise effective, for honesty is the best policy in love, as in law. He was one of the men who were at home with children and looked particularly well when little faces made a pleasant contrast with his manly one. His business, whatever it was, detained him from day to day, but evening seldom failed to bring him out to see. Well, he always asked for Mr. March, so I suppose he was the attraction. The excellent Papa laboured under the delusion that he was, and revelled in long discussions with the kindred spirit, till a chance remark of his more observing grandson suddenly enlightened him. Mr. Beer came in one evening to pause on the threshold of the study, astonished by the spectacle that met his eye. Prone upon the floor lay Mr. March with his respectable legs in the air, and beside him, likewise prone, was Demi, trying to imitate the attitude with his own short, scarlet-stockinged legs, both grovellers so seriously absorbed that they were unconscious of spectators, till Mr. Beer laughed his sonorous laugh and Joe cried out with a scandalized face father father here's the professor down went the black legs and up came the grey head as the preceptor said with undisturbed dignity good evening Mr. Beer excuse me for a moment we're just finishing our lesson now Demi make the letter and tell its name. I know him. And after a few convulsive efforts, the red legs took the shape of a pair of compasses, and the intelligent pupil triumphantly shouted, It's a wee, Trumper. It's a wee. He's a born weller, laughed Joe as her parent gathered himself up and her nephew tried to stand on his head as the only mode of expressing his satisfaction that school was over. What have you been at today, Bumpchen? asked Mr Beer, picking up the gymnast. I went to see little Mary. And what did you do there? I kissed her, began Demi, artless frankness. Thou beginnest early? What did little Mary say to that? asked Mr. Bear, continuing to confess the young sinner who stood upon the knee, exploring the waistcoat pocket. Oh, she liked it, and she kissed me, and I liked it. Don't little boys like little girls? asked Demi with his mouth full and an air of bland satisfaction. "'You precocious chick! Who put that into your head?' said Joe, enjoying the innocent revelation as much as the professor. "'Tisn't in my head, it's in my mouth,' answered Demi, putting out his tongue with a chocolate drop on it, thinking she alluded to confectionery, not ideas." Thou shouldst save some for the little friend, sweets to the sweet manning. And Mr. Beer offered Jo some, with a look that made her wonder if chocolate was not the nectar drunk by the gods. Demi also saw the smile, was impressed by it, and artlessly inquired, Do great boys like great girls too, Professor? Like young Washington, Mr. Beer couldn't tell a lie, so he gave the somewhat vague reply that he believed they did sometimes, in a tone that made Mr. March put down his clothes brush, glance at Joe's retiring face, and then sink into his chair, looking as if the precocious chick had put an idea into his head. was both sweet and sour. Why Dodo, when she caught him in the china closet half an hour afterward, nearly squeezed the breath out of his little body with a tender embrace, instead of shaking him for being there. And why she followed up this novel performance by the unexpected gift of a big slice of bread and jelly remained one of the problems over which Demi puzzled his small wits and was forced to leave unsolved forever.